You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome, everyone, to Season 7 of Turning to the Mystics, where we've been turning to the German mystic, Meister Eckhart. And we've come to the time in our season where we turn to listener questions. And this season, we've had more listener questions than ever before, which has just been wonderful. Um, And so we're going to have three episodes dedicated to listener questions. So this is the first of three. But before we get started in looking at the questions, we have a little milestone to celebrate today. And so I'm here with Jim and with Corey to let you know that uh, we have, today's episode will be our 100th episode, which is so exciting. Jim, I wonder if you have any reflections on reaching this milestone. Yes, yes, I do. I, um, you know, I, I, for me, uh, when I graduated from high school and went to the monastery with Thomas Merton, it was all these life-changing things. And um, it was through Merton that I was introduced to the classical texts of these mystics that we've been listening to in the series, John of the Cross, Teresa, Eckhart, and so on. And so it's been like a lineage of mystical awakening down through the ages. And then I saw Thomas Merton as a living embodiment of that, I saw him as a living, he was a lineage holder in this mystical consciousness. And that, that, that kind of ageless, ageless wisdom of the contemplative way has so t- touched me and enriched my life. Then when I started le- leading and sharing in retreats around the country, I picked up people's hunger for this. You know, just longing these silent retreats and sitting in silence and listening to it. So when the providential opportunity has come up for these podcasts like this, I really see the, the, uh, the beautiful response to it as an expression of that hunger you know, to uh, pass on this ancient lineage to make these mystical teachings as accessible, inviting as possible without watering down the radicality, you know, what we're mm. looking for. So that's, that's why I find it so meaningful to see this ongoing response and we reach this point. No reflection. It's a it's a grace. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that, Jim. And I wanted to bring Corey on, who's been with us from the very beginning, the the uh, person behind the curtain <laughs> of this podcast. And so, Corey, did you have anything you wanted to share? Yeah, I just I find it fascinating to watch how the show has grown since we started in. Well, for us, we started in 2019. The public started their journey with us in 2020. But uh, it's been fascinating to watch the show grow and see all of the same names pop up uh, season after season, asking questions and getting new names along the way. So uh, for me, it's been fun just to watch the not only our trajectory of making the show, but the trajectory of our audience sticking with us and truly becoming what you all talk about as the monastery without walls. So I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Mm, Thank you so much, Corey. And I feel like it's just beautiful that this milestone has landed on a listener question episode, 
because uh, really for all of us, I think we just so value the community that comes alongside this podcast. And um, yeah, it's it's the reason that it's gone so well, I think, is, is the support of the community and all the questions they've sent in and the feedback we've gotten. So thank you to everyone who's listening and um, we celebrate this milestone with you. Yes. And uh, thanks for letting me be here with the two of you on uh, a recorded line. It's now recorded for all of history that we've done this together. So, <laughs> so fun, Corey. Yeah. It's fun. yeah. <laughs> well, it's time for us to turn to our questions. But before we do that, I just need to let everyone know that we had another guest on our 100th episode, and that was the leaf blower that comes and goes in Jim's yard sometimes. So in this episode, in a couple of spots, it's particularly noisy. Um, I guess it's a nice chance for us to practice detachment. So on to the questions. Great questions, beautiful questions. Yes, yes. And Corey wanted us to note that this is the largest amount of listener questions we've had so far in Turning to the Mystics. And we have read every one of them and um, tried to distill them into some themes. And uh, so we'll be addressing as many as we can today, but we, we won't have a chance to get to all of them. Um, but the questions are just helpful, Jim, to ground the podcast in the reality of, of the community that travels along with us. So, so great to read every single one that comes in. We've, I've loved that. Yeah. 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 So you ready to get started, Jim? I am. I'm ready. Yep. Okay. So the, the first theme uh, is around the person of Meister Eckhart and our first question comes from Pam and she asks, I'd like to ask about Meister Eckhart's personal mystic experiences. Did he ever write or talk about that or just focus on teaching the way of detachment? Some mystics do tell us about their awakening. Like Teresa Vila, for example, wrote a book called her, On Our Whole Life. She wrote her spiritual autobiography about her awakening. And uh, Julianne of Norwich, remember the near-death experience she had in the cross and so on. But uh, Eckhart doesn't do that. Eckhart doesn't tell us. We, we know his history, um, that he taught the University of Paris, taught theology, then left and gave the sermons. But we can tell by the depth of his sermons, the depth of his awakening. But he himself doesn't disclose the moment or the ways in which it occurred within mm -hmm. him. So we, we don't know that, yeah, mm -hmm. that I'm yeah. aware of. Yeah. Uh, another question from Jeff. Meister Eckhart experienced difficult and turbulent times through the inquisition of the church. Do you think that he shows us a way of dealing with such turmoil and opposition in our lives? I do. He was keenly aware of those difficulties and shortcomings. But I think he, two things. One, I think he saw the church as a community of infinitely loved people, community of people called by God to God. And uh, he just saw the brokenness as part of, uh, you know, the church community. It should always mm -hmm. be repenting of its brokenness. It should always be trying to be less broken and more helpful. Secondly, he himself didn't feel that he was called to be a reformer in that way. He doesn't address any of those questions. Unlike Dr. Martin Luther King, for example, it's a, it's a very hard, as a reformer, 
he wasn't a reformer. Next, with regard to his trial, where he was accused of heretical sayings, of, of pantheism, and so on, uh, he simply stated that he, he just held to the truth, but didn't mm. get reactive. So he said, for example, that he honestly feels that the, the church people reading his text didn't understand what he was saying. And basically, one key insight, he says, is he made a distinction between indicative thought, where theology defines what is, like God is Trinity, God is eternal, God is love, and imperative thought, which is the language of the awakening of the heart. So all his sermons are the imperative language of the heart, and they assumed he was speaking indicatively, like systematic, which he knew well because he taught it at the University of Paris. And uh, so I think he, he just sort of like just integrity, not to be reactive or passive, but just walk the walk, be true to yourself. And uh, then if you're called to be a reformer, reform. Yeah. But if you're called to follow the interior way, follow it. If you're called to share it with others, share it. And I, I think it's a spiritual direction integrity question. And yeah. that was his response. Yeah, beautiful. And in the end, if you follow the truth, it has a reformative quality to it. So over time, he has reformed the way people approach Scripture. And Yeah, another way of looking at it. I mean, the, the church is as crazy today as it ever was. I mean, we have no mm. trouble today pointing out, you know, like, oh, my God, I don't believe it. What, you mm -hmm. know? But there are also just brilliance and holiness in the church. So who were those bishops and people who read it and condemned it? We don't even know who they were. They're gone. We're still reading Meister Eckhart. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah. so in a way, there's that long-term victory of the truth of oneness mm -hmm. over the squabbles that are all involved in the hand-wrestling matches with it. And he was very aware of it, but he just kept going and didn't get caught up in it. He just stayed true. You know? Yeah, yeah. Gives us hope. Yeah. So next question is from, and I hope I'm pronouncing this name correctly, Yiano, could you kindly elaborate on the distinction between Meister Eckhart's views on panentheism and pantheism? Furthermore, I'm curious to understand why the church condemned his teachings in particular. Pantheism is basically the teaching that everything is God. For example, Advaitic philosophy of Hinduism is that God is everything. God is everything. Eckhart's panentheism is not that everything is, he puts it this way, it's very subtle, that, that God is reality itself, infinite reality itself, infinitely giving in a self-donating creative act God's very reality as our reality, but as our reality in our nothingness without God. So it's not that we're not, it's not that we are God, on the contrary, as I say, if God would cease loving us into the present moment at the count of three, we'd vanish. So we're not God. But God's self-donating act of being the reality of ourselves, others, and all things, and our nothingness without God, is panentheism. Because it's our very nothingness without God that makes our presence to be the presence of God. It's the very nothingness of the rose that makes God to be the reality of the rose. And it's nothingness without God. So that's the pan panentheism uh, thing. And uh, 
he was condemned because he was accused of pantheism. And there are also or other factors. There are some political elements. He was a Dominican, Thomas Aquinas. And it was an ongoing dispute between the Dominicans and the Franciscans, the Augustinian Franciscan school. So there were politics involved in it also. And also, as we were mentioning earlier, that his accusation that they didn't understand what he was saying. They thought he was speaking indicatively, a systematic theology. They didn't understand he was speaking poetically and evocative of the language of awakening. And so those are the contributing factors, I think, to understanding his condemnation. Mm, that's helpful, Jim. So panentheism wasn't a recognized kind of theological category? Well, it, it actually was in, in the mystics. St. John of the Cross, for example, all the mystics are panentheistic in this way. St. John of the Cross says, imagine you're looking at a window and the sun shines through, you see the window insofar as there's smudges on it. But what if the window could be infinitely clean? The sun would shine through and you wouldn't see this. The window would seem to be the sunlight. And in the same way, he says, when we're purified in the dark night of the soul, the soul becomes so transparent in the dark night, it seems to be God in love, even though it remains a creature of God, infinitely less than God. It's experientially uh, divinized through this love, divine union, like that. So in a way, it's at the heart of all of the mystics, in that sense, are panentheistic. Yeah, they're not dualistic. Mm -hmm. just, just not recognized by the academy. In the, in oh, well, the, well, the academy, the academy uh, meaning academic study of such things, recognizes panentheistic thought. And as scholars, they recognize it, its nuance, how each mystic or Thomas Aquinas, different people, how they express it, how they don't. So, but the kind of the institutional, more structural, kind of day by day from the pulpit attitudes that people hear, they don't necessarily, they're not invited to pay attention to such things. You know, it's kind of more straightforward and they just don't go there. It's, mm -hmm. it's subtle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and obviously the, the powers that be in that period of time. Yeah, even for pastoral reasons, a lot of people can't. It's like non-dual. It's a subtle term. See, not dual means it's not two, but it's not the same either. See, it's not the same, but it's not two. That's the panentheistic subtlety of it. So, yeah. So helpful. Thanks, Jim. And a question from Saskia. The sermons of Meister Eckhart always make me feel light and happy, even if I don't understand everything. His words sparkle with joy. I imagine his eyes twinkling when he is talking about horses and flies and angels. Do you recognize this joy? And could you comment on it? Yes. I think it's true. I, I think it's true. And I, I, I don't think when he was giving his sermons, um, there was a lot of grinning and winking and uh, thumbs up and so on. But I, I do think he conveyed in the depth and beauty of what he was saying, the sense of how joyful it is, you know, because it's so, it's so wonderful. To, and like, like the person says, you don't need, to, you don't understand it and don't need to, but something in you does. And what understands it is that you recognize it as joyful. And it's joyful because it's unexplainably true. And I think he lived in that habitually, I think. Yeah. So now we're going to move on to the theme of detachment. 
And I should point out that uh, in all these wonderful emails and questions, people celebrate the podcast and your teaching, Jim. I think people are just so grateful. So um, I'm not reading that each time, but but it's definitely a, a theme. So thank you again for everyone who sent us something to read. Um, so this question comes from Marianne, and it's we're now in the theme of detachment. And she asks, does detachment mean thinking and feeling negative or impatient ways, but not acting on them? As in the funny example you used of the lawn worker making noise when you were taping the podcast and how you refrained from negative reactions, even though you thought of some very understandable reactive remarks. Or does detachment with Eckhart mean arriving at a place where the nitty-gritty of life does not disturb a balance of graced love filling our heart in every moment? If the latter is true, have you ever met a person who is given such a gift? I think that's true. I think that's a good way to see it. I don't think detachment means that we're not disturbed when disturbing things happen. Or it doesn't mean that we're not sad when sad things happen. Because then we would just be distant, you know, isolated. But rather, it's that we're, we're, we're disturbed when disturbing things happen, but we don't let the disturbing aspect of what's happening cause us to lose our balance. Because we're grounded in an infinite presence that's sustaining us, transcending the disturbance and permeating the disturbance itself. It's something to be sat with and listened to and looked at. So it's, it's much more, it's much more like that. I think the middle way of the Buddha is very much like that too. It's really being present. If it is, let it be. Eckhart says. So you accept it as it is, but you accept it as it is all inclusively. So you, the disturbance and the sadness, but you don't. You're not uh, caught off guard by it, or it closes off your access to the infinite generosity that transcends and permeates the disturbance, permeates the sadness. And I think that's the kind of the delicate quality. It's kind of a spiritual direction question, is I think over time, as we mature in love, a lot of psychotherapy is about this too. As we mature in love, we learn to take it in stride and ride the waves of circumstance and keep clear-minded in the midst of unforeseeability, that kind of thing. Thank you, Jim. Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avitt, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. Have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? Explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th. Register today at cac.org slash online dash ed. That's cac.org slash O-N-L-I-N-E dash E-D. Still going forward with detachment questions, but... It's lovely people have 
ask questions like try and apply detachment, the path of detachment to their own circumstances. So we're going to hear about some particular circumstances. And I'll, I'll start with Dolores, who writes, I'm trying on this idea of detachment. I'm so curious about it and also desire to make it part of my growing awareness of who I am in God. Six years ago, when my 24-year-old son was killed in a car accident, my understanding of God was blown wide open. I was angry, and I searched for some kind of meaning or understanding, eventually finding my way to the center of action and contemplation and the teachings of all the faculty there, which has felt like a lifesaver. My relationship with God is greater than ever. In my constant connection with God and communication with God, I also find myself staying connected to my own son as well, as I do believe our loved ones who have passed are still near. This helps me cope with his loss. I wonder if the teaching of Meister Eckhart would describe this as attachment. Well, first of all, sorry for your loss. Your son is really beautiful. I think Eckhart would say attachment would be getting lost in the nightmare of the loss and then clinging to it forever. You're just not going to let go of it. You don't want to get beyond it, hold on to it. You'd also say it was attached in some stoic way. You distance yourself. Well, it's not that bad. There would be attachment to your own peace of mind okay, over stepping into the truth of the loss and walking with it. He would say that as you, as you go through those phases and you come into this more inclusive place, he would say that's detachment. It's detachment from your inner peace being dependent on you having it the way you wish that it was, which means your child would be alive. So, but your child's not alive, not on this earth, your child's with God. And so detachment is you accept the loss, include the loss, and know that somehow the deathless presence of your child is present in the loss. You lose that tangible immediacy, but there's a deeper way of a deathless union that's there and always will be there. And it's detachment. It's just the very detached attitude that you speak of that Eckhart's trying to bring us to. Yeah, Yeah. thank you, Dolores, for sen- uh, sharing that meaningful um, circumstance with us. Yeah, very helpful to everyone listening, I'm sure. You see, I think, Grace, says the, the fruit of detachment is the birth of the word in the soul. And the birth of the word is a state of realizing the trustworthy, boundaryless, divine generosity woven into life as it is. And I, so I think here there's echoes of this birthing uh, in you that he invites us to discover that detachment brings us to if we stay there. Question from Neil. You reflected a line about detachment, being detached from anything that isn't your heart's desire. So where does a calling fit into that? Where do you put having a calling for a vocation or some sort of some sort and following that calling, but without becoming attached? Detachment from the outcome and detachment from the very vocation. Yes, my sense is this. I think we're, we're following the path that Eckhart invites us to follow all the mystics. If we know in our heart that what we're doing in the moment is why we exist. Now, there's two ways to look at that. One would be a way of detachment in that I I exist because I'm here to make more profit. I'm here to make this go the way I want. I exist to see this turns out the way I want, which is really the the sadness of attachment. 
Likewise, one can engage in a calling in an ego-based way to actualize an idealized image of oneself, to get, I mean, whatever, whatever. But there's another way, is that one realizes that one's called to marry someone or a child, or one's called to accept loss, or one's called to teach students in a classroom, one's called to be an artist or a poet, or serve the poor or whatever. And one's, one's called to it, but requires a great deal of detachment from the hardships and burdens and precarious fragilities involved in being faithful to your calling. So you get a sense in your heart you're following the light. You're following, you're, you discern, and it, it sits well with you. It sits well with you. I feel I'm on this right path. It, it enriches me. And I know that it includes my acceptance of the challenges and difficulties that I face because it's transforming my character. And through it, I'm helping others to be transformed. So I think that's the discernment quality of that. A uh, question from Kate. I have three of my own children now, one with additional needs, and I was so naive about how my own trauma would affect my experience and ability to be the parent I long to be. My question is about letting go of outcomes. I know this is an area I really want to become more of my foundation with security and strength from he that sustains me. But I struggle to give up hope, hope of healing from my illness, hope that my children will be thriving, healthy adults, hope that maybe tomorrow will be better than today, hope that I won't always live in fear, etc. How do we live without hope? Or do we move our hope elsewhere? I always think this. I think the spirit of Eckhart, all these things, the spirit of the gospel, I think. Is I think the list of things you mentioned, we should have hope. We should have hope that it's going to work out, that we're going to be healthy, that whatever your own present struggle is, you're going to get through it. We should have hope in that. But here's the thing. But we have hope knowing that if it doesn't turn out the way we want, as we walk through the disappointment and the pain, we'll discover not just God sustaining us in the disappointment, but leading us into realizations we never would have found had we not lost what we lost. It's, it's true that we lost what we lost, and not to romanticize it or make light of it. But what Eckhart would say, we're tempted to think it stops there, which is the idolatry of circumstance. But what if we see that it never stops anywhere? And as we go through it, we'll discover we were given something in the loss about being tender-hearted or compassionate or humble or trusting. And I think that's, that's, that's the Eckhart sensitivity to hope. That's helpful. Thank you for that question, uh, There's one more thing, yeah. too, about hope. He says, eagerness, even mystical, makes one forgetful. That in a way, hope is realizing we hope we get healed from what hinders us from everything we could possibly be looking for is already here. That God already is being infinitely poured out as this present moment, as the sun moving across the sky. And I hope with God's grace I might be healed from being delivered from the illusion that anything's missing. I think that's another important piece for Eckhart. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's it's, it's always kind of those two levels of of what's already present and we might not be conscious of, but also the practicalities of our day-to-day -day life with choices and 
Yeah. Another image of that would be uh, the deathbed of a loved one when the person comes to acceptance. So it isn't as if they're not dying because they are. It isn't as though the loss is painful beyond words, what we can say. But in their acceptance, they're, they are dying, but they're free from the tyranny of death in the midst of death. And in their acceptance, they, it like washes over into us, and we sense something deathless and trustworthy in the grace and being there with them, and so on. So it's like that. He always has that interplay of um, how God's present in our life. Yeah, so I guess our deepest hope is to experience that presence and that those we love might experience it too. Exactly. exactly. The next question is from Marcus, and Marcus is from Sweden. Let's see. Basically, my question is, can one be a mystic in the first half of life? I feel very drawn to the teachings of the mystics you have explored on the podcast, including Meister Eckhart, but it seems hard not to get distracted by first half of life issues. I want to build a life that is ordered in a certain way, and I can't seem to truly detach from that desire. What would someone like Meister Eckhart say about this? Here's the way I put it, Eckhart would say, is that when we're graced with the desire to live by this path, when we're in the first half of life. At the very heart of the desire is a gift that transcends the limitations of our youthful ways. Because we have work to do. There's a lot of unanswered questions. You know, we have to face tomorrow. We have to think. But at the very heart of the grace of even desiring such liberation, in the midst of unresolved things, is the gift. There's something else, too is that the desire to be liberated from the claim these complexities make over us is having the final say in who we are. That's what we're trying to be free from. We, we realize that the sincerity of the desire deepened in quiet meditation and prayer uh, illumines the complexities of our concerns and renders them somehow translucent that God's somehow present in the midst of this. And so we, we learn to roll with the waves and kind of lean into it and see what God has in mind and kind of be open because something's happening to us. Our character is being transformed. In, in the, that's how we are transformed by faith. That's how we mature and, and grow in that. So it's, it's not easy, but it, it's difficult to do that. But it's more difficult not to. Because if you don't, you're still caught up in attributing authority over circumstance. But here, there's the jagged edges of circumstance, but more and more and more, they're losing their authority over your heart because you're more and more grounded that God's one with you in the midst of the unresolved things. I think that's the, the texture of it, I think, for me, I think Eckhart. Jim, I've also heard you say many times um, we are having these mystical experiences throughout our lives. And so for Marcus, how to be open and paying attention when they do arise. And I think Eckhart was, and this is why he didn't pay, he took, so we need to be very careful not to be attached to these moments when they occur. That's why it's a detachment. Because the other key is the intuition that when they do occur, the intuition is that it isn't as if something more of God was given, but rather we were fleetingly gifted to what of God is given in every moment of our life. That's the key, the divinity of the ordinariness of everything. 
and uh, to see how, how these moments are, are tended to uh, stabilize and habituate an underlying clarity that was always there. And from time to time, we're graced with the, the realization of what's always there as a reminder. I think that's Eckhart's tone, I think. Beautiful. And uh, I wonder how many first half of life mystics we have listening to us. No, it depends. I would say this, uh, and I would say this is true of me growing up too. I would say the very fact the first half of life people, the very fact they're drawn to this, is indications of the of the unfolding of mystical stirrings within them, or they wouldn't be drawn to it. They wouldn't be drawn to it. Yeah, exactly. The same for people in the second half. <laughs> We're all in this together. So. so true. Our next question is from Rick, and he asks, how do we pursue empathy, as you discussed, without it becoming an attachment? Is it an issue of balance, or is it an issue of it being a both-and rather than an either-or? It's a delicate question, really. And, and I don't think we're meant to resolve it in some clean, uh, linear way. Because I think when we really love someone, or care about someone, and through empathy, we feel something of their pain. <clears throat> and we want to know what we could possibly do to be helpful in easing their pain, just to deliver them. At some level, we can get attached to it, and that our inner peace will be dependent on the extent to which we're able to do that or the extent to which the person is going to be able to get past it. And insofar as we're caught there, because we're human, because we're human. And so we're always trying to uh, loosen our hold on our inner peace being dependent on the outcome, knowing that it's normal that we care. But our real empathy, I put it this way to Eckhart would say, is that by our presence to them, they get in touch with an inner peace that's not dependent on the outcome of what they're going through. That it isn't, we, we, we want them to do their best to get past it. Of course they wanted to get past it. But we're also bearing witness and helping them to realize that, that there's something much more going on than whether they get past it or not. Because the infinite love of God giving itself to them in every breath and heartbeat isn't dependent on whether they get past it, isn't dependent on anything. And we're trying to help them find their way to that. So, Jim, this question comes from Frank, and he asks, the mystics call us to detach from the things of this world. Are the people we love considered things of this world? They are considered things of this world, insofar as we're functioning under the uh, perception that they belong to us. And... Uh, and whether they comply or don't comply with our help, or what happens to them or doesn't happen to them, uh, is, is somehow we're tied up, our peace is tied up with the outcome of that, insofar then that it is of this world. But insofar as we realize that these people in our lives are God's presence in our life, it's kind of shining out from the unique beauty of who they are as a person like that, that they don't belong to us at all. We don't belong to ourselves, we all belong to God. And therefore, the, the very love from these people, we realize is actually God loving us through these people and giving us God through the love of these people incarnate in their relationships with us. And I think that's how Eckhart would invite us to see it. It's not always easy to see that. 
Yeah, but again, this is where Eckhart would require us to, by leaning into detachment, to lean into being detached from being discouraged about how hard it is to learn that. Like we need to be endlessly patient with ourselves because God is. But what matters is, is that we see it and with God's help, we're working on it. Like we're being refined, you know, in, in the art of uh, this releasement, this galazonite, this letting go. Yeah. Do you think, Jim, we also have to be endlessly patient with humans in general and how we don't get it and how we, we you know, we argue, we fight, we, yeah. Yes, very much so. I would say this, I think it's hard for Eckhart to, is a thing about this kind of experiential self-knowledge on the path of detachment to the birth. We realize in understanding ourselves and being liberated in this way like liberated from the tyranny of shortcomings in the midst of our ongoing shortcomings, like that, like being at peace with that. Then we realize that each person is a unique addition of the universal story of being a human being. And it makes community possible because everyone's going through their own unique configuration of this. So the more aligned we are with this pattern, the more we can kind of get lined up with their pattern and meet them as they're going through this essentially the same process of the great letting go in which the birthing happens, but in the configurations of their details. But, uh, you know, it takes one to know one. Judge not, you shall not be judged. And uh, like that, I think, yeah. Yeah, thank you for expanding on that, Jim. So our last question on detachment is going to be a voicemail. And Corey, who's always in the background supporting us, is going to play that for us now. Hi there. This is John from northern New Jersey calling with a question for Dr. Finley regarding his talk on Meister Eckhart. It seems to me that Meister Eckhart is inviting us to live life without the why questions. I was wondering if that approach to life would negate a purpose and meaning in life, which seems to me to be one of the attributes and important points of living a life of faith within the Christian tradition. Meaning in life helps us to know the presence of a God who has picked us to further his loving priorities. Yes, there's a way that helps me to understand this. To live without a why, you know, the quote we gave from Eckhart, you release a horse in the morning out of the barn into the pasture, and it runs across the field with all its might, but it runs without a why. The rose blooms, why does it bloom? It blooms without a why. And so he's saying this in a way. He's trying to free us from the ideology of meaning. That my understanding of why I'm doing something is adequate to understand what's happening. It's an aspect of it. It's an aspect of it, but it's kind of an ideology. See, of what I'm doing. So what I'm to do is to learn to live without a why, learn to kind of be free and open to whatever truth there may be in my understanding. There's infinitely more to it that I'll never understand because it's divine. It's divine. And then, in that sense, once it comes full circle, see, then we learn to live in the why, but in a radically different way. 
which we might understand as abandonment to divine providence or surrender to the will of God unfolding in our life is the why. It's God's why unfolding and pouring itself out through us in the concreteness of our response like this. That's the why. But again, we get back to the I don't know. Is it, you know, like, um, you know, why, why do you love God because of God? Why do you love, you know, why are you happy to be alive? He said, my word, I don't know, but I'm happy to be alive. That not knowing is a humility out of which he's so clear about who he is. You don't get the feeling when you listen to Eckhart at all that he's confused about who he is. You also, when you, you look at the, his sermons, there's a kind of a disciplined clarity about his mind. But it's not a mind that imposes anything. It's a mind of a kind of a flowing or a sharing of being liberated from constrictions that were not nearly gracious enough or generous enough uh, in the unfolding of what's happening. So those would be some perspectives about that point that I hope speaks. So now we have a question on longing from Liz. In the third dialogue, you talked about the longing of never enoughness that we will never consummate in this lifetime. I love reading Thomas Merton's journals because you get much more of a sense of how he wrestled with never enoughness compared to the neat wisdom you get if you just look at his quotes. But wrestling with longing can be exhausting. Sometimes I long for the simplicity I had. It made life seem easier. Do you have any practical thoughts on how to live in longing? You know, we have things in our life that we, we, we long for, that they might be consummated. And uh, either we might long to get past a very painful thing that's going on with us for a loved one, or you might long that something we want very, very much in our life will actually find it. Not knowing for sure whether we will or not, let's say there are these litany of longings. And uh, that's life. So we, we do our best to work with that. What Eckhart is saying is this. Several things I think Eckhart would say. That what you're longing for, even if it turns out and you would find it, would be infinitely less than what fulfills you. That anything we're capable of finding or losing doesn't fulfill the longing. And Thomas Merton says, our minds are like crows. They pick up everything that gathers. Our minds are like crows. Uh, they, they pick up everything that glitters, even though no matter how uncomfortable their nests get with all that metal in them. So we're always longing, longing. And he says, whenever I long for something and get it, it burns me. It's one more thing I wanted very much that doesn't fulfill me either. So one, there's that. Next, is to know that the longing for what you're hoping for actually though contains within it something of God inspiring you to long for it because it's through the energy of your own happiness, your own fulfillment, the happiness of others. There's a kind of a divine dimension to it. Another level to consider is that all your longings are an echo of God's infinite longings for you. It's the reciprocity of longing like this. And, the, and, and lastly, also to realize that God is somehow infinitely, mysteriously present in the longings itself. It's like the divinity of the longing actually contains within it what you're longing for, like this. And so there's like layers of subtleties about the whole question about longing. 
It's a tough one to live with, isn't it? Because, yeah, it's a very strong feeling, a very... It show you the paradox of it. This is why it's a therapy question or a spiritual direction question, discernment, prayer question. Is uh, I, I long to get to the point where I'll no longer be having to deal with longings. So even, even that's a longing. So, but so how can I be free from the tyranny of longings in the midst of my longings, knowing that God is providentially unfolding in the longings? And sometimes, too, in the midst of longings, we're unexpectedly blindsided by something we're searching for. It was really why we were longing in the first place, and we didn't see it coming like we were surprised by it. Like this. So it's a very intimate question she's asking. Yeah. Liz mentioned Thomas Merton as a... Uh as someone who wrestled with never-enoughness. Did you sense that in him? Thomas Burton has this lovely quote. He's talk, talking to God. He said, Oh, how far I have to go to find you in whom I've already arrived. I only wished it were over. I only wished it were begun. See, that's lovely. And Eckhart would echo that. See, because somehow that's God's presence echoing in the dilemma of his awakened heart like this. And he was very, so he was filled with longing, but the same way in knowing him, he was liberated from longing because he, he deeply lived with this sense of uh, nothing's missing. And that uh, his longings are patterns, like karmic patterns of the unfoldings of discovering that. And then his writings, like Eckhart, these mystic teachers, they try to help pass on, they try to help us see it too. You know, I think, I think that's why they teach. You know, they're trying to, help us with this yeah that quote brings tears to my eyes there's something just so oh my gosh <laughs> um so jim in that session that same session that liz asked you about session three where you talked about longing you also talked about this idea of empathy um having the same level of empathy for the neighbor's neighbor's child as you do for your own and um so this question is saying, um, is the empathy of which you speak in the context of non-attachment to not be undone, to live in the promise that the child that has died still lives, though not here, to empathetically rejoice in this knowing? And how do you uh, approach, how would you mourn every death as if it were your own child? I'd be completely incapacitated. <laughs> yes, I, I touched on this in the talks too. This is and others, all of Eckhart's points are subtle, I guess. Of course, at one level, when he says, we should be as detached, say, from the death of a, a total stranger to the other side of the world, if our own child died, for example. And, of course, we can't do that. It doesn't make any sense. I hear on the news that somebody died, and I think, oh, wow, somebody died. That's too bad. But if one of my daughters, I got a phone call, one of them was killed in a car crash, I'd be devastated. So it isn't, well, one more person died. What's for dinner? Likewise, every time someone dies on the news, I start weeping uncontrollably. So it doesn't make any sense literally at all. It doesn't mean that. So there's acknowledging the human experience that if it's, a, if it's the loved one that dies, we have to bereavement. We have to grieve it and walk through it. Then when we see someone distant from us who's died, we don't feel that. But what Eckhart would say was this. We need to be detached from the closed horizon of our own private concerns and know that that mother and father who lost their son and daughter, 
is as overwhelmingly grieved as I was grieved when I lost, where I would be lost. And that empathic sense of universally identifying with it. The next point is this, in being an empath, being sensitive. You can be overwhelmed by that. So again, you have to hand the whole thing over to God. In the world, God so loved, God sent His only begotten Son of the rise and fall of birth and death and gain and loss. So it's a matter of, of accepting an inclusive sense of God's pervading the totality. Just as each of us is a unique portal, it opens out on that totality. And Eckhart's trying, I think, those are the kind of sensitivities that help me resonate with what it seems to me Eckhart is saying. Well, Jim, our 100th episode is coming to a close and it's been wonderful yet again. Thank you so much for responding to the questions. Thank you to everyone who sent in a question. We're so grateful for all the listeners and for this opportunity to be a part of your lives through this podcast. See you for part two. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.